Bienvenidos a Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. It's Hispanic Heritage Month. Feliz mes de la herencia hispana. The United States is home to over 50 million Hispanic people, the nation's largest ethnic group. And this community is on the rise. The population of the United States is becoming more and more diverse, due in part to a significant increase in American-born Hispanics. They make up one of the fastest-growing groups of consumers. There are 52 million Latinos living in the U.S. Their purchasing power is expected to reach $1.5 trillion this year. And I think much more so than in the last decade when the census numbers came out, we're seeing that a lot of these communities would have lost more people, would not have gained as much, were it not for this growing younger Latino population in all different parts of the country. We know the population is growing thanks to survey research from the U.S. Census and independent polling done in Latino communities across the country. But for many, there's a more basic question at play. What exactly does it mean to be Hispanic? Is it the same as Latino or even Latinx? And how is this growing population changing the trajectory of our country? On today's episode, we're going to do a demographic deep dive exploring Latino identity and how we can get a better, data-driven, and more accurate understanding of this rapidly growing group. We'll talk about the history of different terms used to describe Latino heritage and about how important the upcoming census will be for Latinos. Guiding the way will be our two guests, Matt Barreto, a political scientist from UCLA and co-founder of the polling and research firm Latino Decisions and Rob Santos, the Urban Institute's chief methodologist and the current president of the American Statistical Association. Our first question to both Matt and Rob was, what's the difference between Latino and Hispanic? Here's Matt. Most people use Hispanic and Latino interchangeably. Hispanic is a term that came out of the census in 1970 and sort of refers to the Iberian Peninsula, which also could include people of Portuguese descent. As the word Latino came in, really sort of into the 1990s and 2000s, it emphasized more of the Latin American aspect. And so it wasn't meant to exclude Portuguese necessarily, but it wanted to not emphasize the Spanish ancestry of the word Hispanic you know, as as the Spaniards were seen as the colonizers and, and the conquerors. And so Latino oftentimes takes on the meaning of Latin America. And here's Rob's take. The word Latino really refers more to geographic areas of, you know, the Caribbean, Central and South American, Mexico, whereas Hispano talks more about the essentially conquest by the Spanish of certain parts of the world, and then you superimpose that culture and that language. A newer term has recently entered the lexicon as well, Latinx. Instead of Latino or Latina, Latinx is a broader and gender-neutral term. Latinx as a term is a way of acknowledging and embracing a more gender-neutral identity of the Latino population in all of its rich diversity. So just as there are LGBTQ and other types of genders that make up part of the Latinx and slash Latino community, Latinos 
can be of any religion. Uh, they can be a variety of ages. They can be a variety of lingual, multilingual or monolingual statuses. We're really becoming more diversified, and the meaning of Latinx really is a signal that we need to respect and acknowledge all the diversity in our community and tailor our services, our understanding to these communities, and even more powerfully engage in those communities. These terms can mean a lot for the people who claim them as a point of identity and pride. Here's how Rob describes his background. Uh, I was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas, on the west side. And basically, that's that's my home. Uh, my parents were Kelly Air Force Base workers. Uh, they were civil servants back in the day. This was in the 50s to the, to the 80s. That's where I grew up. I'm a barrio kid. <laughs> on both sides of my family, we are Mexican-American. My grandparents were Mexican. And they came over during the tumultuous times of the Mexican Revolution in the early 1900s, uh, fleeing a lot of, you know, the raids into the small villages and the just the, the basic tumult. And they just simply upped and crossed the bridge or crossed the, the river, sin papeles, and marched over to San Antonio and settled and uh, made a life for themselves. So that makes my parents both second generation, and I'm a third generation Mexican-American. And depending on where he is and who he's talking to, Rob uses different terms interchangeably to describe his identity. So if I go back to the hood in San Antonio, and I'm talking to my my old buddies uh, from high school or elementary, I'll say I'm a Chicano. If I'm in Washington, D.C., talking to the Census Bureau or the you know Bureau of Labor Statistics, I'll use Hispanic. If I'm somewhere else, if I'm in Chicago, you know, doing work with Feeding America, I'll use Latino. It's very situational oriented. And I, I think that's my particular resolution to the identity thing. And I do think that everyone, all Latinos and Hispanics have their own ways of resolving and thinking about this. And these terms matter a lot when it comes to research efforts like the U.S. Census. As you learned back in the day in civics class, the census is a mandatory survey to map the population of the U.S. every 10 years. And the census history for Latinos is complicated. So historically, they had collected data on foreign-born persons as well as their parents. And the first count that came out was a count of the Mexican population. This was maybe in 1930. After that, uh, that data was used in a lot of raids and deportations. And so the Mexican-American community moved to get that racial category. It was actually a racial category. At the beginning, some Mexican-American activists wanted that on there because they didn't identify as white. They didn't identify as black. After it was used, there was a movement to get that taken off. Fast forward to 1970. The census first used the category Hispanic or Spanish origin on a trial basis. And Matt and Rob say this created some confusion for people who hadn't seen these terms before. They put in that box, do you consider yourself of Mexican, Puerto Rican, Cuban, or other origin? And they put examples, uh, Central American, South American. And they found out that a lot of white Southerners checked the box for South American because they had an identity as Southerners. And the same thing for some who lived in the Midwest, put Central American. 
suddenly there were a lot of South Americans and Central Americans in these areas, and they didn't know what was going on. So they did a little bit of research, and it turns out that people from Iowa figured they were in the central part of America. So when they saw the question and they saw Central American, they checked Central American. Matt says that in 1980, they did a better job explaining the category. Instead of saying Central or South American, their example said things like Dominican, Peruvian, Salvadoran, and they still retained checkboxes for Mexican, Puerto Rican, Cuban. And then that went into 1990. By 2000, uh, the word Latino was added. Uh, 2000 was also the first year that the census allowed you to check multiple racial categories. And this is important because the Latino community is not monolithic. There's a real diversity among Latinos when it comes to things like race, ethnicity, country of origin, and language. Let's unpack race and ethnicity first. Right now, the current wording on the census counts Hispanic or Latino as an ethnicity, not a race. Because the census continues in 2020 in most federal forms to count Hispanic or Latino as an ethnicity in the same way that like Italian was counted and not a race. And this gets back to sort of sociological and biological and all sorts of, you know, strange and made up uh, ideas of what is race and what is ethnicity. And there was a movement by a lot of activists in 2020 to try and get it all in one box, like you see in most normal demographic questionnaires. And so it would have just said, check all that apply. Uh, There would have been white, black, Latino, Asian American, Native American. Uh, There was also an expansion to add a Middle East or North Africa, which is called MENA. And so it was going to be a much more inclusive form. And census officials had been testing this new wording for seven years. They tested it. They got community feedback. Some people didn't like how this was worded. They changed it. The Trump administration immediately scrapped that because they were concerned about two things, that a lot of, when put in the same box, a lot of Hispanics would not check white. Currently about 40% of Hispanics check white because they ask us to mark our race. And they were concerned that those people would come out of the white category. As Matt said, the current administration decided not to go forward with the new racial categories. They did an analysis and they said they concluded that the this questionnaire, which most of us can thought would be more accurate, would decrease the white population. And they didn't want that. I mean, they wrote a memo saying we don't want that. Another change that did not go through on the 2020 census and one that got a lot more attention was adding a question on U.S. citizenship. While the Trump administration argued for their right to add a citizenship question to the census inside the court. What do we want? What do we want? Protesters outside railed against the addition. In June, a team of Urban Institute researchers looked at potential miscounts that could occur on the 2020 census. It found that the miscount could disproportionately affect Hispanic and Latino individuals. Rob was a part of that study team. It turns out that white Americans were much more likely to be overcounted and people of African-American, Latino, Native American, Asian backgrounds and other and vulnerable populations or, or more transitory populations like homeless, people who rent, children zero to five years old, those are the people that were undercounted. And that had some major implications when it comes to public policy, planning, funding, uh, federal funding, especially in states like Texas, California, the Southwest, 
and the South, where there's high levels of poverty that are differential, have high differentials between race and cities or, or concentrations or neighborhoods. In Texas, if you took a look at that map, you'd see all along the Rio Grande Valley, the areas with the highest concentrations of Latinos or Mexican-Americans, those are the areas that all are at risk of a low self-participation rate. Those will be the areas that end up being undercounted. Ultimately, because of a recent Supreme Court decision, a citizenship question will not be included on the 2020 census. But researchers still think the census will likely undercount the Hispanic Latinx population. Even without the citizenship question, people are still anxious and nervous in immigrant communities about writing all their personal information down and sending it to the Census Bureau, which is part of the Department of Commerce, which is part of the federal government. And we heard that in our interviews that we did and in focus groups, people specifically mentioning the political climate. They said, what's happening with immigration? What's happening with deportations? This makes me nervous about participating. And the results of the census have profound effects on both our political system and how we distribute taxpayer resources across the country. The stakes are really high. The census is extremely important to get an accurate count, not just of the whole country, not just of state by state, but also within sub-communities, including racial and ethnic populations, as well as down to the county or city level, for two principal reasons. The first is apportionment and the division of all of the U.S. House seats and not only which states do they go to, but where within the states do they go? They have to be drawn around the population because of one person, one vote. And so if your community is growing and is larger, you're going to get an extra seat in the U.S. House and you're going to get to elect a representative. So that is crucial. And that is why it is constitutionally required so that every 10 years we can make sure that all the seats are the same size. Now, but the second is that a lot, like billions and billions of federal dollars flow directly out of formulas that are tied to the census population count. And so not only at the state level, but the county and the municipal level, grants and federal funding uh, is tied to how many people are counted. And so because of that, not only for, for being able to have your member of Congress, but then uh, federal money to support your community, we need an accurate count. Rob notes that when communities are undercounted, they get left out and disparities get even worse. And so we're worried that to the extent that those areas are undercounted and other areas with lower or smaller concentrations of African-Americans and Hispanics are overcounted, when it comes time to create state legislative districts, when it comes time to allocate federal funds, when it comes time to decide where to put fire stations, schools, for the commercial world, grocery stores, uh, etc., that the areas that are most vulnerable and have highest, you know, child food insecurity, you know, the Rio Grande Valley will get less than it deserves and other areas will get more than they deserve. And there's one other big reason this matters. The Hispanic and Latinx population is young and it's growing at a fast clip, which is really different than other segments of the U.S. population. Here's Matt. The Latino population looks like a really extreme triangle where the bottom, the single largest age category, if you chunk it out into five-year bins, is zero to five. The, of any 
age category, the largest raw population of Latinos is zero to five. And then the next is five to 10. And then the next is six to 11. And it's just perfectly triangular shaped. And when you get up to the top, where when you compare it over to the white Anglo population, where there's a huge population over the age of 70, there are almost no Latinos over the age of 70 as compared to the distribution of our population. And so that's why it's growing so quickly. And it's not linear. In 2024, I mean, you're talking another 5 million people are like a ridiculous number like that. And then when you go to 2028, it's like another 7 million. This fast growth means that the Hispanic Latinx community is becoming a bigger political force. So most of those people in the bottom third of the triangle who are under the age of 18, I think 90% of them are U.S. born. And so many of those who are U.S. born have immigrant parents. So they're in the second generation. And so they're still close to the immigrant experience, but they're all U.S. citizens. So as they come of age and turn 18, they're eligible to vote. And we're seeing that change the voting population in a number of states. It was critical in Arizona in 2018 in that midterm. There was a huge increase, larger than anyone expected. Um, And it was driven of Latino voting in Arizona. And it was driven mostly by the 18 to 24 crowd. I mean, just huge increase there. Uh, And that was because, you know, something like 500,000 new 18 to 24 year old Latinos voted in that midterm. But there's another 500,000 who were like, Seniors in high school who couldn't vote in 18, who will be voting in 20 in Arizona. Same thing in Texas. You're seeing how Texas is starting to really change. That's being driven by this young population, which is coming of age, and they're entering the electorate. They're still entering the electorate at lower rates because young people do have lower rates of political participation. But the numbers are so large that they're they're essentially overwhelming the traditional electorate. And so we are seeing that. We are seeing the Latino electorate grow in size and that it's getting much younger. Each year it gets younger um, because so many young people are coming in. With over half of the population currently under the age of 33, Rob says we can expect a Latinx tsunami. Over time, as these people, these individuals grow and mature, they will have more of a say through their civic engagement, through their purchasing power, through everything else about them, that through their identity. However, I guess the the bottom takeaways for me are that because we have a younger population that's coming through the system, by the time they hit adults, they're going to have some major say in economic policy, in immigration policy, and so forth. I think uh, it's just as right now there's a silver tsunami coming of the baby boomers, there's a Latinx tsunami that's coming over the next couple of decades. The sheer size of the Latinx community makes it all the more important that we have good and accurate data. And pollsters and researchers who study Latinx communities haven't always gotten it right. Here's Matt. About the time in the mid-2000s that Latinos were starting to get more political power, you would occasionally see data and presentations from D.C., from consultants that had Latino data in it. We looked at the results and we thought, these are not an accurate reflection. The polling was still being done only in English. There were no demographic weights to make sure that you had the right number of immigrants, second gen or third generation population. Uh, There was no checks to make sure that you had the right number of college educated versus the huge number of people, especially immigrants who never even completed a high school degree, but they're voters. And so when we looked at the data that was circulating in D.C., From our perspective, it did not appear to be accurate and representative. And then there just didn't appear to be enough. 
Matt says this is starting to improve, but it's slow going. Rather than have a one-size-fits-all approach for the Latinx community, it's important to understand this group has many dimensions. We're seeing more general consulting firms and polling firms hire Latino staff to, to try and better understand their data. You know, generally speaking, because the principals at these places are still not assessing this from a Latino lens, it's still sort of an afterthought. And so I think that, you know, in general, they have a ways to go. They need to improve the way they think about Latinos, the sample sizes, just making sure that they have enough Latinos that are representative, um, making sure they're always offering their surveys and their polls in Spanish, that they're bilingual and, and that they can accommodate that, that their demographics are accurate. And those demographics can get very specific, right down to individual enclaves and cities. We were doing research, working with media consultants and working with campaigns to do specific targeting for Puerto Ricans just in Orlando, to do separate targeting for U.S.-born Cuban-Americans in South Florida, separate from Spanish language advertising that was targeted to foreign-born Cubans also in South Florida. Then you had strategies that emphasized issues related to Venezuelan and Colombian populations also in South Florida in the hopes that, you know, that would have a slightly different appeal So the more thoughtful we are from the outset about how to measure and capture the diversity that's in the Hispanic Latinx population, the better results we'll get. Here's Rob with some closing thoughts. Our future, especially with the Latinx population tsunami that's coming, that we will see much more of an acculturation and an embracement of the value that different cultures and different peoples add to our grandiose, magnificent melting pot that is the United States. We're really becoming more diversified, and the meaning of Latinx really is a signal that we need to respect and acknowledge all the diversity in our community and tailor our services, our understanding to these communities and even more powerfully engage in those communities and let them be a voice in how we conduct our policy research to benefit them. Because after all, those are the folks that we're trying to help. And how can we help them unless we make them a part of our own knowledge gain and insight and research process? As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here's three things you need to know. One, There are over 50 million Latinos in the U.S. It's the youngest and fastest growing demographic in the country, and it's a diverse, vibrant group that doesn't easily fit into a single category. Two, an accurate census count is important because it determines how representatives in Congress are apportioned and how government resources are allocated. Having full participation of the Hispanic Latinx community through the census is essential to ensuring accurate representation and fair distribution of taxpayer dollars. And three, to have a better understanding of Latinos in the U.S., it's important that outreach and survey efforts fully understand the nuances and different demographics of the Latinx community. In the next couple of decades, we'll see a Latinx tsunami that becomes a hugely important force in our political economy. So that's our show. Big thank you to Matt Barretos and Rob Santos for talking with us. If you're interested in learning more about our work on the census, check out the show notes with links to blog posts and reports, www.urban.org slash critical value. 
And I'm required by podcast law to say that if you enjoyed the show, bounce on over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It helps others find the show and we really appreciate it. And big thanks to producers Kate Villarreal, Katie Smith, and Jacinth Jones for all their help. Plus, thanks as always to our sound editor extraordinaire, Riley Byrne from Podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.